Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. If you like vintage and retro style, you'll be shopping at these two shops. Paper Doll Vintage Boutique and Paper Doll Curiosity Shop. Long Island's premier shops for vintage, retro, gifts, and more. Paper Doll Vintage in Sayville has all one-of-a-true-kind vintage clothing and accessories for the true vintage lover, while Paper Doll Curiosity in Patchogue carries retro novelty gifts, toys, clothing. They've got something for everybody. Got something for the whole family. You want the credentials. Paper Doll Vintage Boutique has won first place in Best Vintage Clothing Store in the Long Island Press's Best of Long Island. Seven years in a row. Undefeated. Can your vintage and retro store say that? I'm going to tell you what, probably not. Because of the unique nature of the items sold there at both stores, the shop has become a local hub for artists, the community, hosting monthly art shows, classes, events, and even fashion shows. You got to check this out. You got to come down. You got to see it. From theme party goers, theater stylists, companies, photographers, designers, all facets of the industry. How about that period film project? You know, the one that you've been thinking of that needs authentic wardrobe and props? Paper Doll Vintage. Paper Doll Vintage Boutique and Curiosity Shop specializes in distinctive items that are hard to find anywhere else. One of a kind. One of a kind. And you're one of a kind and you deserve that. Shop PaperDoll.com and express your personal style. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. What are you waiting for? exclaimed one Jennifer Love Hewitt. That's right, this week on The Offering, we are talking all about I Know What You Did Last Summer. Offering with me, Jerry Hara. Uh, I'm very happy that you're here. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for streaming. I appreciate your support. Now, as we go through life, we're encountering people. You're out at the store. Uh, you might be seeing family. You're encountering people, and you never know what people are going through. That's the reality of it. Very rarely do people ever open up to us and let us know kind of what's going on. You know, a lot of folks keep a lot of that emotional stuff very closely guarded. I guess what I'm trying to say is try to be a little more empathetic. Try to be a little more kind. You know, I saw a sign the other day at a pizzeria. And basically the gist of the sign said, the entire world is short-staffed right now. Please, please be patient and respectful. And that's that's basically what's going on. We need to be a little more respectfully of each other. Despite people's political beliefs, despite how they feel about certain issues, we might not agree with them. But we must be kind. We must be empathetic. It's very important, especially in this climate. Because, you know, as they say, all we got is us. 
And all I got is you. And this week on The Offering, we are talking all about the other film of 1997. No, not Scream 2. We're talking about Kevin Williamson's other film. His other, other film. I know what you did last summer. Uh, This is a good movie. I enjoy it. It's a fun one. We need to talk about it. I've been doing this whole Scream series, so it's kind of the sister picture to that series. So I felt it was important. And I do think that perhaps not culturally, even though this movie has its fans, obviously nostalgia, it's 1997. We're recording this in the year of 2021, the year of our Lord. Uh, Reality of the situation is that it was very influential because it it kept the fire going. If you have Scream dropping in 96, this drops in 97, keeps the fire going, keeps it prepped for Scream 2, which is the inevitable sequel. This movie made a lot of money. But uh, if you want to know all the dirt, you're going to have to follow me. Ladies and gentlemen, I know what you did last summer. December 1996, Scream drops, heats up, becomes the number one movie by February in the United States, and that's 97 now. They were hoping to have Scream 2 ready by Halloween, but come on, that would have, again, that's what I talked about, people. Uh, On one of the last episodes, it was kind of hard to explain. Sometimes I get confused. Scream 2 was ready by October of... Yeah, October of 97, it was ready. But it didn't come out because the MPAA. October 17th, that is a Halloween film, straight up. Um, I saw this in the theaters. Uh, I had friends. They worked at the the mall. You know, they worked at the mall, the local mall. And uh, there was a cinema in there, four screens. Saw a lot of seminal films there. Saw Lost Highway. Saw Godzilla. The one with Puff Daddy. Well, I forget what the song was. It was him and Jimmy Page. Come with me. Ooh, Jesus Christ. That just unlocked a memory. 1997, we've got... I know what you did last summer. I saw it in the theater at the mall Cineplex. I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't like the metrics of this movie. Everybody's too pretty. It's too pretty in this movie. But you know what? I see it, and the film opens up, and it has this amazing panning shot of the ocean. I'm from Long Island. I'm from a place. I'm very familiar with the ocean. Some people tell you I'm part fish. I love swimming. It's one of my passions. If I see you in IRL, invite me to come swimming. You got a pool? I'm in. We're going to the ocean. I'm coming with you. I'm a water guy. This shot is panning over the ocean, seeing lighthouses and all that cool stuff, rocks and the ocean. The water's breaking, cresting over those rocks. And we've got typo negative. I'm sorry, guys. Like, secretly, I'm a, like a goth kid. It's kind of like a secret. I don't know how much of a secret, but it's, yeah, I am. Um, Summer Breeze, which is off of Bloody Kisses one of their best records. So when I was in the theater watching this and we've got the ocean, we've got typo negative, this movie is working for me. Let me just say from a personal standpoint, 
I enjoy this film. I do. It, it's an enjoyable film. I did not like the ending. That was That's really my main beef. I definitely wanted more gore. I wanted... A, I thought the way that this was positioned was much like in the vein of things, you know, like he knows you're alone. Um, I think always in the back of my head that somebody's going to make a new version of Pieces, you know, or The Mutilator, but it... I knew that the sensibilities in the 90s would not allow for that type of ultraviolence, even though I secretly, you know, happy bloody birthday, happy birthday to me. It just wasn't going to happen. I like this movie. It's not a, it's, it, here's the thing with this movie. Okay. It's for Kevin Williamson. This is pretty much like we talk about, um, like Griffin Newman. They have a podcast called Blank Check. This movie is Kevin Williamson's Blank Check. Okay, he's cashing in from Scream. Uh, Columbia TriStar, which is Sony. Guys, I want to make I want to make this clear that this was a separate other company, and now it's Sony, and they own the franchise because that'll come into play later. Um, regardless, he does Scream, and Sony comes to him, and they say, "Look, man, you you knocked it out of the park. Sight unseen." They gave him $5 million to develop this movie, which was originally known as Untitled Kevin Williamson Project. There were no rewrites on this film. Nothing was changed. And Williamson was given $5 million without even writing a word. He had final say, final draft. Uh, They couldn't, like, it was like, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a gem. I'm going to give you a masterpiece. So... We talk about when an artist gets fuck you money, and this is like Kevin Williamson's first touch of fuck you money, where it's like, I made Scream, it was the shit, it made a lot of money, and now if you want me as a writer, part of my brand, because at this time, you know, like we're, we're gearing up for, for Dawson's, it's, it's all happening, the faculty, it's a short amount of time where like Williamson is just white hot, and they're going to pay him to do whatever, and this movie is that first movie. And the back end points on Scream, but this is this is the first time that, you know, it wasn't Miramax. And and to be perfectly honest with you, I applaud Kevin Williamson because he didn't become a Miramax writer. He wasn't one of those guys who was like, oh, I'm going to do like 10 different projects for them. You know, like uh, Rob Zombie, Kevin Smith, even Tarantino. You know, there's people, I mean, those are the big famous ones, but there were writers and editors that came up through the ranks of Miramax. And Williamson was very smart. He was very smart to go develop Dawson's the way he did. He was very smart to do this. Because if you made somebody money, another company is going to come to you and say, hey, can you make us money? And that is really the genesis of this project. So the boy and girl are making out, right? when they hear over the radio that this lunatic killer's escaped from an insane asylum. That's not the way it goes. The boy goes for help and the girl stays in the car and she hears this, like, scratching sound. No, he's been decapitated. No, he was gutted with a hook. We can't just leave him here. Oh, tell me, little Miss Prelaw, what's the charge for manslaughter? We make a pact. Right here and now we take the Sar grave. 
For the last year, four friends have kept a secret. Are you on drugs? No. Well, then what is wrong? I've had a rough year. But not all secrets stay buried. Somebody sent this to me. Oh, my God. Someone knows. I know what you did last summer. Ooh. What they thought would be a new beginning. Toast to us. Is becoming a dead end. Somebody tried to kill you last night. We have to go to the police. If you want to be dead, he could have done it. And the mistake they made. It was an accident. There was no accident. It was murder. What if he's still alive? Hey! What are you doing here? Is coming back to haunt them. Oh, my God. He's after me, too. I got a letter. I got run over. Helen gets her hair chopped off. Ah! Julie gets a body in a truck and you get a letter? That's balanced. She's waiting for us to unravel. <laughs> the wait is over. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? I know what you did last summer. I know what you did last summer was greenlit in February upon the big number one of Scream. And this movie is just bump, bada, bump, bada, bump. It's got the rhythm of making money. So it's greenlit just on that whole principle alone, which is crazy. And they say, listen, you got to deliver us something of this quality, uh, something that's going to match or whatever. So. Head of Sony says, we, we're getting Kevin Williamson, the guy who wrote Scream. Well, how are we going to get him? Pay him whatever he wants. This goes into the whole thing of the paycheck. And uh, now it's March. And they basically, um, they asked Williamson, they're like, hey, how do you feel? Would you want to direct this? And he's like, I'm not a director. I, I can't direct this movie. Um, I can't remember the guy's name right now. It's kind of inconsequential. Look it up the director of this film who ends up he's a and you know what the thing is I heard he's a nice guy he's a Scottish guy but I don't think that Williamson and he really hasn't directed in his career but I don't think Kevin was was ready to uh direct a film you know basically because of the whole killing Mrs. Tingle situation that's that's a future episode Jim Gillespie oh yeah that is the Scottish director who ultimately made this film uh, yeah, so it was just Kevin Williamson wrote this joint. Now, originally, Kevin Williamson had thought to himself, I'm going to incorporate, going to get the old urban legend of the man with the hook. And if you know the story, you know the story, but let me give you a quick recount. If you don't, it's Lover's Lane. There's two young people. They're making out. They get disturbed. They hear something on the, you know, like scratching on the top of the car. What was that? Okay, go back to making out, carousing, whatever they're doing. There's another, you hear the this, this scraping. So this is this is a big one, obviously, because it's by the ocean. Generally, that's where this is told. Ultimately, they take off into the night. And in most versions, there's a hook attached to the door. Some versions, they're listening to the radio and they find the hook or they find a body with a hook in it swinging from a tree up above. But uh, essentially, they hear something on the radio that says, you know, there was a crazy murderer with a hook hand that had uh, escaped the asylum earlier. And that's that's the general gist of that urban legend. So Williamson tries to combine that with something that was akin to Scream. And 
basically he goes back to his childhood and what what he was inspired by was Lois Duncan and Lois Duncan is a YA author primarily does like thrillers horror I read her stuff most people most people of a certain age grew up in the 80s and 90s they read Lois Duncan stuff I don't know if that stuff transitioned much into the early 2000s maybe if you're out there and you're a fan of Lois Duncan let me know you're probably on Twitter probably on Twitter, you holler at me at, at Cherry Horror. Tell me about your experience. I liked her. She, she, uh, a lot of good books, a lot of good books. First off, can I just say, I love the title. I know what you did last summer. Let me tell you something. This movie could have been anything. That is a heck of a title because we talk about there are titles that they're front loaded, right? Runaway train. What's it about? It's a runaway train. American Ninja. What's this movie about? Is an American ninja. Like, there's something, and I don't want to just say it's all canon films, but there is like truth in advertising. What am I getting out of this movie? Breaking two, electric boogaloo. Okay. I, I know, okay. I, I think I know what that is. That sounds cool. Um, I know what you did last summer is more sinister. It goes into kind of that whole mystery thing. Well, how do you know? And what did I do last summer? Kind of asking yourself those same two questions. It's creepy. It's cool. It, it, it sticks with you. The original book, though, the novel, 1973, was written by Lois Duncan. She is the OG horror YA author. Like, seriously. She opened a lot of doors. Like, if you're a fan of, of all the modern R.L. Stein stuff, she opened all the doors for young adult horror thriller novels. I read this novel as a kid, by the way, and I didn't realize it. I didn't connect the dots until after seeing the film. Didn't even know. I thought it was just a coincidence. In the version, well, obviously in the novel, they basically run over a little kid. And that was kind of dark. Now, Duncan's novel is more of, if you dig the the murder mystery, Agatha Christie, Knives Out style, you know where there's quite a bit of a mystery happening there. If you dig that, that is what her book is. Her book does not have the killer fisherman on a quest for vengeance with a hook. Uh, it's a little more like a giallo. People are getting stabbed, strangled, that sort of a thing. It's very Agatha Christie. Uh, so they basically kill this kid. And it ends up being like the brother of the kid who's actually, you know, offing everybody. But it's two types of directors. And I've said this many times. There's directors who will kill a kid and there's directors who will not. And Jim Gillespie, love him or hate him, he will not kill a kid. Director of this film. Um, Williamson realized that it was that was going to be the most problematic, but God damn, it's got fucking impact. If you saw some kid that looked like fucking Elliot from E.T. and he gets, he gets hit by a car by these scumbag teenagers... Come on, it's it, that's a movie. That's you got something. You're cooking with gas there. It's look, it's messed up. Some people aren't going to like it, but it's like it changes the dynamic of the entire piece because if okay, if these are not pretty people who are being terrorized by by some revenge-driven maniac, kind of becomes what are we doing? You know what 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 are we really doing? Because if those characters kill that kid. You want to see them get killed. You don't care. Who cares who the final girl is? Murder them all. 
They're pretty. They've got good uh, bone structure. Who needs them? Speaking of which, the first person cast in this film, shockingly, Ryan Phillippe. He was he was the dude. They were like, hey, we like this guy. He auditioned, and that went off without a hitch. Freddie Prince Jr. is also in the film, and uh, it's a very loose definition of acting. He auditioned for Billy Loomis in Scream, and he was not chosen. It was, it was Skeet Ulrich, obviously. Um, he was not. He didn't. It didn't happen. In some other weird multiverse, in Spider-Verse, it's happening where, where Freddie Prince Jr. is in Scream, and his career trajectory is totally different. Maybe he can act. Um, damn, I'm sorry, Freddie. Like, I respect you. I think you're a good dude, but this movie, this performance is like, what? Huh? It's, it's very much like Keanu Reeves mumblecore. I'm sorry, but shit, we, we got to call a spade a spade. Freddie Prince Jr. Your father was very talented. Moving on. (laughs) It's fucking terrible, but yo, that's real. That's real. And that's what you're going to get there. I ain't kissing anybody's ass so I can get online at a fucking horror convention. Oh, Freddie Prince, sign my fucking chits. No, me and Freddie, we're going to talk. Probably going to fucking strike me in the mouth. But that's cool. We'll both be better for it. Now, Sarah Michelle Gellar, probably the biggest actress of 1997. Yo, she's got, she's in Scream 2. She's on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And she's in I Know What You Did Last Summer. She's probably, I will say this, and I don't give a damn who says what. Arguably, most profitable, most profitable, by metrics alone, the most successful actress. All of 1997. Scream 2 made bank. This movie made bank. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a veritable juggernaut of television. You know, we all know that Joss Whedon's a scumbag. All right, it's it's no this guy. He sounds like a fucking scumbag. I'd prop this guy, Freddie. I know you're not an actor, but maybe you can scrap. Hit this dude in the face. You see, I mean, I look. I don't condone violence. He's just he's a scummy dude, but he made some good television. Some people don't like Age of Ultron. I like it. I think it's good. I, I like Ultron. You know what? Maybe I like Ultron because it's James Spader. Okay, there I said it. That's it. He's the draw. Look, I digress. I got to go back here, folks. The next person, after Sarah Michelle Gellar, who was just bringing down the house, two $100 million plus movies and a top 10 show, ain't nothing hotter than that. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's that's pretty cool. I got to be honest with you. Um, Jennifer Love Hewitt was kind of a lock, too. This wasn't one of these movies. Now, I have to tell you guys, because... Movie gets greenlit in February. Movie's in pre-production in March. We have to have this out in theaters by Halloween because that's when a good scary movie will make money. And that's what this is. This is... this is. Scream was far more under artistic pretenses. Whereas this film, while still a film, it's a movie. Um, it's meant to make money. It's meant to capitalize off of the success, but it's its own thing, okay? It is unequivocally a response to Scream, but it's not bad. 
and it's kind of its own thing. It's not a Scream clone. Uh, Urban Legend was a bit more of a Scream clone, to be perfectly honest with you. They're making this film. It's got to be Fast and Furious. They got to get it done. Um, this movie was made for like $17 million, which is about on par with what they spent on Scream. Uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things, too. When they were making this film, one of the big problems that they had was this, the director, Jim Gillespie, he kind of left a lot of the kills very bloodless. And they realized that they needed to put more impact. They needed to front load the film with a grisly kill. Uh, that's when you, with the whole, uh, what's his face, Galecki kill. You know, the guy from the Big Bang Theory. That guy. I don't even care what his name is. Is it Jonathan Galecki? Something like that? I don't know. Who who cares? Who, he was on Roseanne. You know, he was Russ in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He's been around. But that kill that he gets murdered down by the docks, he needs to get murdered in a nasty fashion. So that was, in that scene, the way it's done with the sound and everything, um, you can see the hook penetrating uh, under his jaw. And that kill needed to be impactful. Um, it, it was, believe it or not, it was going to set the tone for the rest of the film. Oh, producer Pete has run in with a, with a fax. It says, Johnny Galecki. How could I forget Johnny Galecki? You know, his brother's Johnny Drama from Entourage. No, Johnny Galecki, ladies and gentlemen. Write that down in your scorecard. Offering bingo. John, Johnny Galecki. That is J5. Uh, if you're playing along with the home game. Um, they needed to put some nasty kills into this movie. So this this was kind of one of those things where studios are generally like with our film. You know how it goes. Hey, could you cut out some of the blood, some of the gore, some of the monster stuff? You know, it's, if it's a if it's a kind of, you know, 17 million dollars, 1997. It's it's a, a mid budget sized teen thriller. They needed to add blood. So Gillespie went back and did some reshoots and they added a bit of the red stuff. Um, and it works because it's minimalist. It's not a lot of gore. It's not a little. It's like the right measurement of gore. I always want more. I think one thing that I have to accept is that I love prosthetic makeup. I love special effects and I love seeing people get killed in nasty ways. You know, like Friday the 13th, Tom Savini, that, that's my jam. I like that kind of stuff. I like seeing people get all butchered up. I'm fucked up. I'm sorry. But you wouldn't be listening to this if you weren't too. So, you know what? It's come to Jesus moment. I, I got problems. I got I to gotta solve them. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. This movie went off kind of without a hitch. The only problem that they had, you know, obviously, like, they're shooting it up up in that Rhode Island area, 
you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's dicey. Um, one thing they learned with Jaws, don't ever shoot on the water. And there were a lot of sequences where they were shooting on the water. The tide would come in and they would have to just change all the shots. Um, the scene that they shot at the end where they're confronting the killer, uh, they shot that all in the water. And Gillespie basically said that was a mistake. Guys, look, if you're out there, if you're a director, if you're a director right now or you're a filmmaker, let me say this. You don't want to shoot on the water. You want nothing to do with it. Listen to Uncle Steven Spielberg. He will tell you, he'll be the first one to tell you it almost drove him to madness. And look, yes, things have improved. That was the 70s. But water, especially the ocean, whether it's a bay or a river, it's a force of nature. Speaking of force of nature, she was only on set for one day. She was the actress who played. She was only on set for one day. Uh, Anne Heche. Excuse me, it was two days. Uh, she rocked the house because she was operating at that point as a method actor. And she totally just scared the shit out of Jennifer Love Hewitt and everybody else she worked with. Like, they said she was fantastic. Like, you know, like everything that you could want from another actor, like they're just giving you a genuine, supportive performance that you can work with, work off of, react to. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of the kills are kind of weak in this film, but I think what makes this movie work is the dynamic between our characters, Ryan Phillippe, Freddie Prince, Jennifer Love Hewitt carries this film. Uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, interestingly enough, fun fact, she has in her contract that she can never be killed. Doesn't matter what she does. Could be the Ghost Whisperer, Heartbreakers with Sigourney Weaver. It's in her contract because she made a promise to her grandmother. And her grandmother said to her, this is her, her 17th birthday. Was Jennifer, just promise me and, and your mother and everyone else that they'll never kill you on screen because it's, it's like bad juju. So that's in her contract. So listen, you want to get Jennifer Love Hewitt, you want to give her my number. No, if you want to get her and you want her to be in your picture, don't kill her because she won't do it. That's just the way it is. This movie, ooh, believe it or not, comes out, finally released October 17th. You're going to be shocked. Cost $17 million. Made $15 million opening weekend. They did one of the biggest... Uh, for 1997, I think they did like five or six million on the Thursday night pre-screen because back in the day, the way they did it, they generally did it at midnight because it, it kind of added an allure to the whole thing. They eventually start, you know, they pushed them to like 11 and now like you can see a pre-screen at like 6 p.m. Like they don't care anymore, but it used to be midnight showings. It used to be the rule was it was the day of opening. So it was 1201. It was fun. Right, we, we didn't have much back then. We tried to make it as fun as we could. So 1201 was a cool release. Uh, five or six million off of those midnight releases. And again, these are one screening. It's not like they're showing it again at two. They're not showing it at 10. It's one screening per every theater it's in. Ultimately, this movie makes $125 million. And to boot, uh, with the burgeoning DVD market that was coming, but with the VHS market... This was a banger. This, believe it or not, people, they laugh at this. Uh, Sony produced probably more of, if the average film 
that they put out on VHS at that time, if they were producing a million units, they produced like 3 million of this. That's, that's pretty much the numbers. Um, they, this one sold and it rented. It was, this was one of the biggest movies, believe it or not, they couldn't keep it on shelves. Blockbuster. I know what you did was, was it made money. I mean, dude, this is $125 million, but it really cleaned up on video. I mean, they, you know, they probably made, cause we don't, we don't look, we can, some of these numbers we have like some of the early ones, like the ET sell through top gun. We know what those sold, but we'll never know what the sell through, you know, when it was selling at a record store, when it was selling, um, you know, in a Kmart for $10 or $15, whatever the VHS was at the time, this movie made them a ton of money. You know what though? Lois Duncan author saw the premiere comes out of the premiere talks to people i didn't like it i don't like it so if you ever wonder why other lois duncan things really haven't been adapted well (laughs) when you fuck sony like that and you come out of the movie and say oh look she went on record and said she hated the movie and look stephen king certified crazy person I love Stephen King. I want to adopt Stephen King. I want to shrink him down and put him in my pocket and take him places. I love Stephen King. Stephen King knows that some of his films have been stinkers. Look, I'm sorry, like thinner. Come on, let's be honest. It's trash. It's not a good movie. Stephen King did not like The Shining. But I don't, I mean, it was the material, but I think Stephen King just didn't like Kubrick. That that was basically what it was about. There was... Stephen King was still very young in his career. That was in the 70s. Like, he had just appeared on Late Night with Johnny Carson. Like, he was really just breaking out as, okay, he's not just a writer. He's a phenomenon, you know? So, he was young. Probably still doing the cocaine. Did not get along with Kubrick. Kubrick was not going to share his cocaine. It was just, it was a situation. Uh, But Lois Duncan, OGYA novelist, uh, probably shouldn't have talked trash about this movie. Because, I mean, obviously they had Killing Mrs. Tingle in production at the time. Uh, but really, what else? Like, honestly, I can't cite anything then in the next decade that Lois Duncan did. Whereas, you know, like with other authors, you kind of can. They were still a little more proactive. Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Geller met on the set of this film, got married, had kids. Happy ending. Must be nice. How am I supposed to feel about this? Producer Pete, how am I supposed to feel about this? Two pretty people meet on the set of a movie. They fall in love, still together. God bless. It's always nice to hear. They got kids. It's fantastic. You know, I'm jealous, all right? I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, come on. I wish I was a pretty person who met Sarah Michelle Gellar on the set of this film and shit just worked out and kept working out and... WWE made you the head writer for no reason. Sorry, Freddie. This, <laughs> if anybody takes a beating in this episode, it's definitely FP Jr. He's taken a beat down. And I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm sure he's like totally like the coolest guy in the world, great dad or whatever, but I'm still going to keep talking trash. It is what it is. This is the way it is, man. Like, I got nothing bad to say. I, you know what I think it is? I think it's that I... Oh, let me get to this. I still, I never got to preface this. I waited till we got to this point. I saw the film. I dug the film. I'm in the theater. 
the ending of this movie is Jennifer Love Hewitt. God, she's so hot in this movie. I'm sorry. Like this, I don't want to be creepy or anything, but can we just talk about that for a minute? She's in a towel. She didn't even need to do nudity. She looks fantastic. It's like all the college girls just like, that's enough of Jerry Hara. He is a canceled because he talk about Jennifer Love Hewitt looking ripe. Whatever. She was beautiful. Right now, I'll tell her she's beautiful. She'll feel special. I'll make her feel special. Look, it's one of these things where this movie worked out for everybody. Everybody went on to work. Everybody was eating, right? Everybody did good. Philippi did a bunch of pictures. Jennifer Love Hewitt did a bunch of stuff. She made a lot of money on that Ghost Whisperer. Did you know the Ghost Whisperer had a comic book tie-in? God, like, how big? That's crazy. It's on the air for, like, over a decade. It looks crazy. Crazy. But, hey, God bless her. You know, it's money. Um, Jennifer Love Hewitt, she got a check. Everybody got a check. This, this, oh, my God. So, the ending of the movie, she's in the, see, this is, I was so distracted by her beauty. It led me down other places. She's in the towel. We're at the end of the movie. And the fisherman who is played by Muse, Muse Watson. I have to say the guy, Muse Watson, who played the fisherman, he was scary. He was, he was doing his thing, man. He didn't have much to work with. He's kind of like a lumbering Terminator guy with a, a hook. He jumps out through the, the mirror. The foggy mirror says, I still know what you did, which would become the sequel title. Um, and he pops out of the mirror, smashes through the mirror. I hate that fucking ending. That ending was cheap. They used to do this a lot in the eighties where it's like the killer's not dead. Like, you know, any of the nightmare on Elm street films, you know, where it's like ever since they put that tag with the mother, Nancy's mother being sucked through the door in nightmare on Elm street. And that wasn't Craven. That was added onto the movie. Uh, the guy who uh, ran New Line Cinema. Okay, we know that. But it became like the stinger in every movie in the 80s. And I felt like it's 1997. We don't need to be doing this. Like, you don't need a cheap ending. You don't. You really don't. And we talked about it last time. Go listen to the other episode about Scream 2, where Miramax inserted that ending with Ghostface in the clock tower. And it was just weird and lame and dumb and didn't make sense. And that's what this is, because we're led to believe that this fisherman has a supernatural quality. There's this weird line that this entire film seems to skirt, skirt, uh, where essentially it's like, yes, this is grounded in reality, but it kind of could be a ghostly. And that's the other thing, because we've got Freddie Prince Jr. And we've got Buffy the Vampire Slayer in this movie. It feels like Scooby-Doo because, as we know, a couple of years later, they do Scooby-Doo. They got a check. They, they did a sequel, too. I think everybody's getting paid. Beautiful people falling in love, making money, time of their lives. Matthew Lillard is there the whole time. I'm sure he's... See, we like... On this podcast, we like Matthew Lillard. Fans. Card-carrying members for, for... He's a cool dude. He's got good range, and I think he's a better actor than most people give him credit for. There, I said it. Underrated, most underrated Matthew Lillard from this era. Look, beautiful people, making babies, making money, cashing checks, breaking necks. You know what it is. You know what it is. This is a good time for everybody. Uh, I hated that ending. Now, originally, get ready, kids. Put on your caps for this one. 
the original ending for I Know What You Did Last Summer was, and it would, because this is the advent, it's AIM, it's the rise of the internet. Kids are using the internet. The internet's a thing, man. We got to address it. So she's like in the foyer of her parents' house and she's on the computer and she's like on AIM or whatever. And it's like, she's just typing. And then it comes like mysterious text message from AIM, like unknown comes up and it says, types in slowly. I, I still know what you did for my money. I know what they were trying to do with the fisherman who we thought was killed. Muse Watson uh, did a great job as the fisherman. Um, we thought that he was dead. So now in this movie, that's kind of quasi supernatural. You are introducing at the end. If this, if this is the ending, this thing is fully supernatural because you killed that dude. You know, like you, you killed him. You killed the fisherman. He's dead now. So if we're going off of that precedent, then this is a supernatural thing. It's a ghostly figure. It is a very Scooby-Doo type of thing. And that's part of its appeal. It works. But we've always talked about in this podcast that every movie has internal logic. And you can break the movie if you don't pay attention to that. So is it supernatural? Are you embellishing it for stylistic purposes? Or is this grounded in reality and this is a flesh and blood killer that can die? Once the internal logic of a film is broken, it's kind of hard to... Look, if you're going for ambiguous, if that's a part of the rub as like a David Lynch type of filmmaker that you're working with in a more abstract perimeter, yeah, it's more acceptable. But if you're doing a linear thriller that's for a mass audience for a Halloween opening... You got to do it a little more paint by numbers. I think Gillespie, I can't say his name. We're just going to call him Dizzy Gillespie. Um, Jim Gillespie, I think it was more of a stylistic choice that he made with this film to make it more creepy and otherworldly looking. But ultimately, I think some people were kind of confused. Even me, I was a little like, well, what is this thing? This fisherman, he's out for revenge, but is So this movie made a ton of money. We talked about this, made a ton of VHS sales. You know that there's going to be a sequel. It's inevitable because we've set these precedents at this period in time. So Sony says, okay, let's make, let's make a sequel, but where, where can we trim the budget? Huh. Let's not hire, <laughs> let's not hire Kevin Williamson, the guy who wrote the, the movie. So that's like their first mistake. We're not going to hire him because we already paid him five. We've got the franchise now. We don't need him anymore. We've, we've got it. It's fine. Hmm. What else can we do? Ooh, Brandy. She's a, she's a singer. She goes on to make the uh, sitcom Moesha. She's kind of a big thing. They're like, oh, kids like Brandy. We'll throw Brandy in there. Um, they tried to do whatever they could for I Still Know. I Still Know. And again, this is a film we might do. Uh, if you guys want me to do this, I'll totally do it. I hate this fucking movie. I like, I dig, I dig this first movie. I do not like, I still know. I still know is a fucking train wreck. And, and let me tell you, it's okay. If you like it, there's a lot of listeners. There's a lot of fans that I know young women were growing up and they like, I still know. And that's fine. It's okay. It's okay. You can like what you like just because my opinion is different than yours. Don't trip. Um, it's a shitty movie and I fucking hate it. Uh, it's a terrible film, 
And the only reason that you like it is because you have nostalgia and you have rose-colored glasses on. This is a terrible film. It's a terrible sequel. In the beginning of the film, they undo the entire, that third act that I hated so much, they undo it. And you see, that's the thing. I'm a sucker. And especially for slasher movies or horror movies, I will come see your third, fourth, fifth dumb sequel just to see how you continued the story. I mean, when I was younger, it was Friday the 13th. And those are kind of ambiguous. Like, yeah, sometimes Jason's in the lake, but sometimes they just don't, they don't even mesh. It's like that time in Jason Takes Manhattan where he throws up the toxic waste and becomes a child. And then the next movie is the final Friday. What are we doing? What is that? You know, like, I'm, look, I'm like a dumb little kid who just started masturbating. But you know what? Like, don't, don't insult my intelligence. I know what happened to in the last one, he was in the lake. Now he's out of the lake. He's on the boat. Why? What are we doing? It's terrible. Just terrible. So, yeah, they had to retroactively undo what they did in the third act, the final beat of this film. It is what it is. Like, you know, I still know what you did. Uh, has Jack Black. And this is the, the funny thing. This is basically my big takeaway with I still know. So they don't get Kevin Williamson. They're basically th- trying to get this film into production as quick as they can because that's it's a money game. That's just how it works. You want to capitalize off of the, the previous year, the previous product. You say, no, Kevin Williamson. We'll set it. We're, we're going to send Jennifer Love to college. We're going to send her to college. Guess what comes out two months after I know what you did last summer? Scream 2. Sydney goes to college. And because Sydney goes to college, Jennifer Love cannot go to college. Jennifer Love has to get sent to an island with fucking Jack Black and Moesha. What are we doing? She wins a contest. Would you trust anyone? Hey, you won a contest. Come to this secluded island. You a moron? You can't see this coming? If you didn't book that motherfucker and it doesn't include breakfast with Goofy, don't go. Don't. It's a trap. It's, it's a trap. Just like that guy he told you from, from Star Wars. He's like, it's a trap. Brr. I don't care. I think it's Mon Calamari. I think that's his name. But if it's not, come on. Gotta get a life. Admiral Akbar. Producer Pete says it's Admiral Akbar. He's a Star Wars nerd. He's not fucking. Freddie Prince Jr. fucks, but Producer Pete is, is not fucking. Um... This movie had a great soundtrack, too. And it's right up my alley type of soundtrack. We go, you know, it's got corn. It's got typo. It's a little deep, meaty parts. It's got a little bit of new metal. Ooh. Ooh. See, but that's the thing, man. The, the tw- Okay. I'm, I'm going to try to give this an honest metric. The 20% of new metal, 20 out of 80% was banging. It was really good. Like, there was good new metal. The other 80% was very cringy frat boy shit. It was pretty terrible. But the stuff that was good, like your corns, uh, it was very good. And and I dig corn. So that works for me. The soundtrack sold very well. Um, basically, October 14th, they dropped the soundtrack and the score, which, oh, hey, we didn't talk about the score. We got the guy who wrote Scream. Let's get Marco Beltrami, who had just done his first score, recently did the new Fear Street movies. Not all of it, 
They actually reused some bits from Scream. We haven't talked about that, but I'm watching you, Netflix. I've got my eye on you. You use pieces of Beltrami score from Scream in your movies to enhance your film. Whatever. Um, it is what it is. God bless. So, Marco Beltrami, um, the score sold well, shockingly. It was kind of one of those things where people were really into CDs at the time. The soundtrack sold well. The score sold well. Sometimes there's no need to get into the numbers. Look, I want you to know, like, if you can't sleep tonight, just letting you know, I know what you did last summer. It cracked the top 10. It did good. It sold CDs, posters, a tower records. Oh, fantastic. I don't think ultimately, and, and really, I want to tap out of this because I feel like there's really not a lot more to cover. I'd be giving this film far more credit. And this is essentially my final thought on this film. It's a good movie. It's entertaining. It's a fucking hell of a popcorn movie. I would recommend it if you've got uh, younger kids, your, your kids, you got nieces, nephews, kids in your life, your children. This is a good gateway movie. Like totally show this to your 12 year old. They'll love it. It's great. Like this, this is a good popcorn movie. It does not have the cultural relevance, even though you might like this movie, even though you, you have a fondness and nostalgia for this film. It is nowhere near as culturally relevant as Scream, but that's okay. That's okay. It was, it was a response to Scream and it was good. It wasn't really a slasher film. It wasn't meta. There was no inner monologue or contextualization of what was happening to these characters more as we saw in the Scream film, even though it's Kevin Williamson. This was the flex. It was the blank check movie. He made a lot of money. It was made very quickly. Had a good cast. It's got a good plot. The pacing is tight. It is more akin to a thriller and a murder mystery than it is to a slasher film. Take that as a you know, like I just got my doctorate in slasher films. So please take, take my word for it. This is not a slasher film. It is more in that Agatha Christie, 10 little Indians. Um, who done it? It's a who done it. So screams a who done it very much. So the first film, especially they all have the element of it, but this film is reminds me more of a Hollywood film, something that like this could have been made in the seventies. This could have been made in the fifties. Like it's just a thriller. Uh, with that being said, it's a good movie. It's a serviceable film. It's a good film for young people. Um, me and producer Pete, we're going to do a rewatch. I would love to lie to you and tell you that I I, re I really didn't. I got bits and pieces of it. Uh, I watched a lot of the supplemental material that came from the uh, extras. It's on the Blu-ray. Um, you definitely, you can watch those on YouTube. But to be perfectly honest with you, it's definitely worth it. Go in there. It's the making of I'll Know What You Did Last Summer. You need to watch this just because of the simple fact that it's got, it's a half hour documentary and you get way more time with Kevin Williamson and you get to kind of understand what the process was. Uh, these films, whether it was Wes Craven, whether it's Jim Gillespie, these films were successful because Kevin Williamson was probably the most interesting voice as a writer at that point in time. And that is the testament to this film and to Scream and to everything else that he was doing at the time. My name is Jerry Hara. This has been The Offering. Make sure to tune in 
be well. Hope you're getting ready for spooky season because you know what? doesn't matter what time of year it is. Spooky season is within and you can make that. You can go to your happy place anytime you want. I will see you guys uh, next time. Mostly horror, always genre. And I'll always know what you did last summer. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.